Once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, just like our new listeners in the Middle Eastern countries of Jordan and Kuwait have done. I just looked up the weather in Kuwait a little while ago, and their high temperature for the day was listed at 119 degrees Fahrenheit, so I would recommend you listen to this podcast indoors. Welcome aboard. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us on iTunes, I will be sure to read it on this very podcast. If you like the show and want the good people of Kuwait to know what you think of the Raw Attitude podcast, why not write us a review? On a quick side note, our number of plays really shot up this week, to the point that I'm pretty sure someone must have mentioned the show either on another podcast or on a website. So if you're a new listener, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod so you can let me know where the hell you heard about us. Also, we have now surpassed 2,000 total plays, so thank you very much to all our fans across the world for helping us achieve that milestone. Now before we begin, I must give a huge thank you to friend of the show slash previous guest co-host Martin Dixon for providing the podcast with a brand new logo featuring Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. And really, if you're going to make a logo featuring two wrestlers who were synonymous with the Attitude Era, you can't pick two better guys than that. Absolutely awesome, and I cannot thank him enough for that. But I will try to do it on the next episode when he rejoins the show for guest co-host duties. Definitely looking forward to that because he did such an awesome job when he was here for episode 14. And on that note, another huge thank you to Troy Bozen from the Geek and Gamer Guild podcast for joining the show last week and doing a fantastic job of recapping DX's Invasion of WCW. In addition to hosting the Geek and Gamer Guild, he also writes a weekly wrestling power rankings column for the Questionable Endeavor Network, so check that out at www.questendnetwork.com. And while you're there, please also be sure to check out my new column, Curiosities of the Canvas, where I profile forgotten matches, which are now quirky historical footnotes due to the wrestlers who participated in them. My first column is about the very first televised match where Scott Hall and Kevin Nash teamed together in WCW in the year 1991, when they were using the gimmicks of the Diamond Stud and Oz. I'll put the link to the article in the episode description, so definitely be sure to check that out if you want to revisit a kooky match which had previously been lost to time. Alright, with all of that being said, let's kick into this week's episode. It is Monday, May 4th, 1998. May the 4th be with you! And we are pre-taped six days in advance from Richmond, Virginia. We open with a recap of last week's events, where Stone Cold Steve Austin clobbered Vince McMahon in the head with a chair at Unforgiven, resulting in a bitter Vince making a WWF title match on Raw the following night, Austin versus the artist formerly known as Goldust, with Gerald Briscoe acting as guest referee, and Austin being immediately fired and stripped of the title if he laid a hand on Briscoe. 
You may recall that Dude Love interfered and started beating on Stone Cold, and in the ensuing chaos, Vince tried to hit Austin with the belt. Instead, however, Vince ended up clocking Briscoe, bloodying his head. Michael Cole's narration informs us that Mr. McMahon personally holds Austin responsible for Briscoe's injury, so we will see what transpires tonight. Cue up the opening theme song, The Pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Really, only one sign stuck out to me this week, and it wasn't even that great. It just said, quote, Val Venus is hung. Way to state the obvious. We open with a shot of a lava lamp, some inflatable chairs, and a psychedelic 60s school bus, so that means it's time for the love shack. Mick Foley emerges from backstage, but instead of being dressed as dude love, he is dressed in street clothes, including a red and black flannel shirt, which is reminiscent of his days as Cactus Jack. He's holding his dude love attire in his hands, and he asks if anyone in the crowd knows his name, because he himself barely knows it anymore. He says that he beat Stone Cold Steve Austin at Unforgiven, but how was he rewarded for it? He didn't receive a rematch, nor was he proclaimed the number one contender for the WWF title. Instead, the man who got a title shot was the artist formerly known as Goldust, who he refers to as, quote, a panty-wearing pansy. Foley says that if you check his resume, he was going head-to-head with the WWF champion while Goldust was wearing a black teddy in a women's negligee match. Ouch. That's gotta hurt the old pride there, especially because it wasn't even a match, it was Goldust dressing up as Sable so Luna could act out what would happen during their evening gown match. Foley then says he's been informed tonight that he will wrestle Terry Funk in a no-holds-barred, falls-count-anywhere match. He says this is probably Vince's way of getting them to kill each other so he doesn't have to deal with either of them anymore. Foley continues by saying he isn't going to throw away 13 years of hard work in this industry by sucking up to a lowlife like Vince McMahon. He then references last week's Love Shack segment with the Dudettes by saying he refuses to let his wife and children see him, quote, bumping and grinding with a couple of second-rate strippers on national television. Harsh. And really, that's not very fair. One of those strippers was clearly third-rate, but I I take his point. He holds up his dude-love outfit and says he'll be damned if he ever performs in those clothes ever again. He then proceeds to call out Vince McMahon by saying, I, Cactus Jack, want some answers, and I want them right now. Now, this strikes me as a bit odd, because five short weeks ago, Foley had cut a heartfelt, emotional promo where he was almost on the verge of tears, and he claimed he would not be seeing Cactus Jack in the WWF for a very long time, yet here he is referring to himself as Cactus Jack. Go figure. Sure enough, Vince McMahon does indeed emerge from backstage. Foley holds up his doodle of attire and tells the boss he doesn't care if Vince buries the costume, burns it, or puts it on himself, but he will not make Foley dress up like an idiot ever again. He then throws the outfit in Vince's face and asks him if he has made himself clear. McMahon responds by grabbing the microphone out of Foley's hand. He asks who the hell Foley thinks he is, to which Michael Cole gets a rare, amusing one-liner by saying, that's the problem, I don't think he knows who he is. Vince says that Foley did indeed get a victory over Austin at Unforgiven, but he didn't get the job done because Stone Cold is still the WWF champion. Not only that, but when Foley didn't get the title shot last week, he bitched and moaned, just like all the fans do when they don't get their way. Well, at least that's still consistent today. Vince says that booking Foley to fight Terry Funk tonight is not a punishment, but rather, it's a reward. If he can beat the living hell out of his own best friend, pull out Funk's beating heart, and hold it in the air, then he will have proven that he has what it takes to be the number one contender for the championship. And also, he'll likely be the world Mortal Kombat champion as well. He says that Foley may have thrown the Dude Love costume in his face, but he just threw some truth into Foley's face, and then he slaps him. 
A smile comes across Foley's face, but before we can figure out whether he has been enraged or inspired, Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits, and he emerges from backstage with a grappling hook in his hand. He chases Vince down to ringside, and then he starts knocking over the set of the Love Shack as Foley looks on from the side of the stage. Austin throws the grappling hook so that it latches on to the cutout of the psychedelic bus, and he pulls it to the ground. He stomps on it and flips off Vince, and that is how our opening segment comes to a close. Have we finally witnessed the death of the Dude Love character 15 years after McFoley created him? I guess we'll have to wait and see. After a commercial break, we get our first match of the evening, WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock and Owen Hart versus Steve Blackman and Farouk. We're told that not only has Owen joined the Nation of Domination, but he is now a co-leader of the group along with The Rock. I understand why Owen would receive that designation since he's obviously a cagey veteran of the business, but it seems a bit strange considering we're only about a month removed from The Rock turning on Farouk and proclaiming himself to be the ruler of the Nation of Domination. So it comes across as a bit odd that he just gives away some of that power to Owen Hart, with whom he previously had no relationship. We get footage from last week of Owen Hart turning on Ken Shamrock, along with the subsequent pilmanizing of Shamrock's ankle and Owen locking him in the sharpshooter for quite a while. Amusingly, when they show a replay of the attack, they go back and actually splice in fake audio of a bone breaking. And then with Shamrock's foot, his ankle is tied up in that steel chair. Owen Hart came off maliciously, deliberately, and right there, the snap. Well, hey, if you're going to fully commit to an angle, why not add some kooky sound effects? Jim Ross tells us that Shamrock is now in a cast and will be out of action for, quote, several weeks. Of course, I had to consult our friends at WebMD to see how realistic a time frame that is. According to them, it takes four to eight weeks for a broken ankle to heal, and our good friends at the world-renowned Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco, say that a return to sports activities is only possible after 10 to 12 weeks. I think you can probably guess as to whether or not Shamrock returns before then. Anyway, before the match, Commissioner Slaughter comes to the ring and forces Mark Henry, D'Lo Brown, and Kama to head backstage in order to minimize the possibility of someone interfering. Was this strategy successful? Well, no. The match lasted about six minutes and was pretty solid, but The Rock and Owen picked up the victory when Jeff Jarrett interfered behind the referee's back, choking Blackman on the top rope. This then enabled Owen to hit the lethal weapon with a spinning heel kick and pin him for the three count, only the second pinfall loss for Steve Blackman in the WWF. But really, if you're going to have the guy lose for only the second time, shouldn't he job to a better move than a spinning heel kick? I mean, that move wouldn't have even been a finisher by 1970s standards. Up next, we get a pre-taped segment narrated by Vince McMahon, which tells us all about the life and career of Gerald Briscoe, and Vince even sneaks in a plug for the family-owned Briscoe Brothers Body Shop. The segment is made all the more entertaining by the fact that it ends with Briscoe himself shamelessly kissing Vince's ass to further play up the fact that he is a corporate stooge. You don't need to hear the whole segment, but I will play the end part for you. Gerald Briscoe's loyalty to the WWF is everything this great organization stands for. Everything I own in this entire world, I owe to one man. I'd like to publicly thank that man today, probably the finest human being I've ever met in my entire life, the owner of the World Wrestling Federation, Mr. McMahon. Thank you very much. When we come back from commercial, we then kick into the first ever vignette for a superstar who is set to debut soon. See if you can guess who it is. What could have happened to this man that brought him to this place? 
Just to give you some context for what you just heard, we see a long-haired man sitting on a subway platform, walking through a train, and apparently beating up a homeless guy for some reason. At the end of the segment, we get a very brief flash of one word appearing on the screen, Edge. That's right, folks, the future holder of 11 world titles and 31 total championships is debuting in the WWF soon. I would tell you to get excited, but he's actually not all that interesting when he first arrives. He gets better, though. I promise he does get better. Up next, D-Generation X heads to the ring, one week removed from their invasion of WCW Monday Nitro. For the second week in a row, Triple H begins with his Let's Get Ready to Suck It intro, so call me crazy, but I think he's going to make that a thing. He tells us that Operation DX will continue, and then he hands the mic off to Road Dog, who does his customary Tag Team Champions of the World introduction. He reminds us that DOA beat the Outlaws last week in a non-title match, but tonight, when the belts are on the line, they will stand victorious. However, he is then interrupted by LOD2000 and Sonny. I'm probably playing too many clips this week, but fuck it, I have to play Hawk's promo. Enjoy. Hey, DX! You know the five of you remind me of five dingleberries clumped together, pulled right from the sweaty crack of some obese old man's butt. You got Mr. Ass, which would make Road Dog Mr. Hall. You make a fine pair. And you got Hunter, who's Mr. Nose. And you got China Well, who's just Mr. Man. And what we like to know if you guys got the guts to turn this four-way dance into an eight-man. What? Well. Amazing. However, in case you were distracted by the goofiness of the word dingleberries, what Hawk essentially just did was turn tonight's Outlaws versus DOA tag team title match into an eight-man tag match instead. Did he run that by DOA first? I would assume they would want their title shot instead. Regardless, the eight-man tag match is on tonight, and that means we will be getting Sean Waltman's first match on Raw since May 20th, 1996, when he lost to Savio Vega as the 1-2-3 kid. And speaking of Savio Vega, he's competing in our very next match, and his opponent is the newly face Dan the Beast Severn. If you recall last week, Jim Cornette foolishly slapped Severn when the Beast attempted to get in the ring and face Triple H, so Severn took Cornette down with an armbar, officially ending his relationship with him and his NWA stable. This week also marks the debut of Severn's new theme song, and I mention this because when I've been researching Severn for the podcast the past few weeks, I've noticed there's actually quite a sizable contingent of wrestling fans who really love this theme. I think it's pretty good, but I'll play about 30 seconds of it for you here and let you be the judge. Pretty rockin' for a guy who is basically the most bland wrestler of all time. 
At the start of the match, we get something we likely will not see anytime soon on WWE television. They actually hype the upcoming UFC 17 pay-per-view. Fun fact, that event marked the debut of future UFC Hall of Famer Chuck Liddell. As for the Severn-Savio match, it went pretty much as you would expect. It lasted about two and a half minutes, with Severn picking up the victory when he locked Savio in the armbar. Another uninspiring squash for Severn, but hey, at least he has a badass theme song now. We then cut backstage where Jerry the King Lawler is standing next to Paul Bearer and preparing to interview him about the bombshell Bearer dropped last week where he claimed that Kane was actually his son. We're told that the interview will take place after the commercial break, but then something strange happens. We can hear the director say, okay, you're clear, and the cameraman then puts the camera down so it is lying on its side but still recording them. Lawler and Bearer think they are off the air, but they continue talking and we get to hear this conversation. I nailed, nailed, <laughs> yeah. well, no, okay. Tell me, well, how did that happen? I can't trust you. I'm tell, I'll tell nobody. I was 19 years old. I was an apprentice at the funeral home. Right. I went out one Tuesday night to the wrestling matches like I always did with my friends, had a few beers, coming to the funeral home, and there she was in this little teddy outfit. <laughs> I, I've never been, don't tell nobody, I've never been with a woman before at that point. I, I wasn't fat like I am now either. In fact, Jerry, I was kind of studly. Oh, were you yeah, right? Yeah, I was. Well, anyway, I come through the door and she took me right there. Right there. Where was it? On the embalming table or no, something? No, no, no. On the kitchen floor. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, at the kitchen floor. <laughs> the Paul slips the salami to the undertaker's mother on the kitchen in floor. In the kitchen come on. apartment of the funeral You swear to God. I, I swear. It's, it's the gospel truth. That's the way it happened. She took me, an innocent 19-year-old boy. That's, I lost my virginity right there. <laughs> it's true. It's Paul Bearer buries his baloney in the undertaker's mother. You know, she on. was a moaning and a groaning and a screaming, and I heard some little feet coming down the stairs. Uh, it's a good thing I got up. Because it was Little Taker coming down the stairs. I stopped him just in time. <laughs> and then it took two more steps. He had seen his mama's feet. One of them was in New York, and the other one was in LA. <laughs> Can you imagine? If, if Little Undertaker had come in and seen Paul Bearer and his mother bumping ugly. <laughs> Pretty amusing. However, for some reason, when we return from commercial, Lawler apologizes for the fact that their conversation was accidentally shown on the air. But really, I'm placing the blame on the crew there. I mean, the director was dumb enough to think they were off the air, and the cameraman left his camera running. So for my money, the whole segment was a testament to the staggering incompetence of the WWF production team. Not to mention the fact that this episode was pre-taped six days in advance, and they could have easily left that footage on the cutting room floor instead of showing it on Monday night. And now that I have sufficiently killed kayfabe, let's move on. Up next, we flash back to last week, where Sable challenged Mark Marrow to a match on next week's episode of Raw. Jim Ross tells us that Sable has now stepped up her workout regimen, and we get footage of her training in the gym, which is really just an excuse to zoom in on her breasts and ass. 
If you need a frame of reference, think of the music video for Olivia Newton-John's 1981 hit song, Physical, and you'll get the idea. This segues us back to the arena, where marvelous Mark Marrow is heading to the ring. His opponent is scheduled to be Jeff Jarrett, who is once again given an intro by my favorite wrestling personality of all time, Tennessee Lee. This week, Jarrett has twirling pyro in the shape of the letters JJ, and he also gets to walk down the aisle on a red carpet. However, before this rare heel versus heel match can take place, Steve Blackman runs to the ring and starts beating the crap out of Double J as payback for Jarrett's interference in his match earlier tonight. Eventually, referees are able to separate the two of them, and then we cut to a commercial. And so, just like last week's Triple H versus Dan Severn near encounter, the WWF teases a match and then proceeds to disregard it entirely. Vince Russo, the master of ADD booking. And speaking of ADD booking, when we return from break, it is now time for our eight-man tag match, which was originally booked as a tag team title match, Triple H, the New Age Outlaws, and X-Pac versus LOD 2000 and Disciples of Apocalypse members Skull and 8-Ball, or, as I shall call the team, L-O-D-O-A. Before the match begins, referee Mike Kyoto ejects Sonny from ringside and prepares to do the same for China, but DX informs Kyoto that China will actually be wrestling in the match. As such, X-Pac is forced to head backstage instead. For those of you scoring at home, we now have a bit of history here. This is China's first ever WWF match. She had previously competed in four matches for the International Wrestling Federation in 1996 as Joni Lee, but this is the first time she has officially had a match in the WWF. And sure enough, she gets into the action early on as Billy Gunn hits Skull with a Famasser, or as Jim Ross called it at the time, a version of a rocker dropper, and China frantically held out her hand, asking to be tagged in. Mr. Ass does indeed tag her in, and she immediately hits a slow-developing Hurricane Rana on Skull. She goes for the cover, but Skull powers out of it, so she immediately tags right back out to Road Dog. A few minutes later, Triple H works over Hawk and tags China back in. She puts the boots to Hawk and then poses on the second turnbuckle, so Hawk dives into the ropes and knocks her to the floor, which draws a pretty good pop from the crowd. She later manages to hit a low blow on him as DX distracts the referee, and then she tags out to Road Dog again. I will note that Hawk was actually selling for China, which is particularly impressive, considering the fact he doesn't tend to sell all that much for his male opponents, let alone the female ones. Kudos to him for that. Toward the end of the match, Hawk made the hot tag to 8-Ball, but then Hawk, Animal, and Skull started arguing in their own corner for some unknown reason. Hawk shoved Skull to the arena floor, and LOD then proceeded to gang up on him. Back in the ring, 8-Ball noticed what was going on, so he gave up on the match and ran to the outside of the ring to help out his partner. DX simply looked on and laughed as Mike Kyoto proceeded to count out the bickering team of LODOA, giving DX the victory and making China 1-0 in her WWF career. Meanwhile, the Legion of Doom and DOA continued to brawl as WWF officials attempted to separate them. If this massive brawl was due to the fact that Hawk rebooked DOA's tag title match so it would be an eight-man tag match instead, well, then I kind of don't blame DOA for that. They make a pretty good point. When we come back from commercial, we get footage from during the break where the two teams continue to brawl backstage, so apparently the WWF officials just gave up on separating them once they walked through the curtain. Smart move. Also, I'd like to know where the hell Chains is when his two biker pals are getting their asses beaten. Not a very effective stable leader, if you ask me. Back in the arena, it's now time for our next match. Kane, accompanied by his father, Paul Bearer, versus Goldust. Yes, that's right. He is no longer being billed as the artist formerly known as Goldust. He is back to being just Goldust. 
for a little while anyway. Stay tuned for that on the next episode of the podcast. The match only lasts a couple minutes before The Undertaker runs down to ringside to attack Paul Bearer, presumably due to Bearer's comments from earlier tonight about Roger and Taker's mom. Kane heads outside the ring to pull him off, and Taker then starts hitting him too, which I believe results in a disqualification victory for Kane. The two of them start brawling up the ramp as, stop me if you've heard this before, referees and WWF officials attempt to separate them, including Commissioner Slaughter. At one point, Taker ends up punching Slaughter in the face, which could presumably have negative repercussions for him. Although really, if you're an undead zombie, do you actually care about any sort of monetary fine? I assume they just pay The Undertaker in souls at this point. Up next, we get a five-minute video montage showcasing the friendship and rivalry between Mick Foley and Terry Funk. Will Foley batter the shit out of his best friend in order to impress the boss and get a shot at the WWF title? We'll find out in just a bit. When we come back from break, we get another Val Venus vignette where he is wearing a helmet on the set of his new movie entitled Soldier of Love. And this time around, he actually has a famous co-star, none other than Jenna Jameson herself, who pops up from below frame to ask if they can, quote, go back down in the hole. Yes, the WWF actually managed to bring in Jenna Jameson at the height of her popularity. In fact, Here's a clip from a recent Vince Russo shoot interview where he discusses bringing Jenna in for multiple vignettes and what Vince McMahon's reaction was. So prior to Val coming in, we're doing a whole bunch of vignettes, okay? At that point, remember that money's no object, right? right? We get the hottest going porn star at the time, Jenna Jameson, okay, to do the vignettes with Val We're at Bruce Pritchard's house. We have Jenna Jameson in the tub, in Bruce Pritchard's tub, in his house, both of them buck naked. We got Jenna Jameson buck naked. And this is the only way that would ever happen at Bruce Pritchard's house. Yes. We should make that very clear. Let's make that very clear. So we shoot all these vignettes with Jenna Jameson. She was the hottest porn star at the time. I'm excited. Bruce is excited. I go back and I show Vince these vignettes with all the expense and all the work and everything involved. He kills every single thing that Jenna Jameson is in because he thinks she's ugly. And like, I, I, I just, I was like, I was just beside myself. Clearly, the biggest revelation there is that Jenna Jameson was naked for an extended period of time at Brother Love's house. Would not have guessed that. Anyway, back to the show. At this point, it's almost time for the main event, but before we can get into that, Tony Chimmel introduces your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who is out to do commentary for the match. Before he joins JR and Lawler, he amusingly walks over to the front row, where a vendor is holding a tray full of Budweiser's, and Austin proceeds to take the tray from him and chug a beer on the commentary table. Ah, classic alcoholic Austin antics. And now for your main event, no-holds-barred, falls-count-anywhere match. Terry Funk is out first, and oddly he enters to Cactus Jack's theme song. Funk does his typical awkward jog to the ring, where it looks like he pushed out a grumpy halfway down the ramp. But now the question is, which Mick Foley personality will he be facing? The answer is... Well, none of them, really. He just gets introduced as Mick Foley. His ring attire is a flannel shirt over a white t-shirt, along with a pair of gray sweatpants, and right off the bat we can see that the sweatpants have a sizable hole right by the crotch area. Here's hoping that we don't get a glimpse of Dick Foley during this match. 
With the match about to begin, Tony Chimmel lets us know there will be a special guest referee, Pat Patterson, who then heads to the ring dressed in a referee shirt. Austin says this was obviously Vince McMahon's idea, and then he mocks Patterson for having a stupid haircut. Fair point. The hardcore legends waste no time brawling to the outside, and Funk cracks Foley in the skull with three chair shots barely more than a minute into the match. We see that Foley is now bleeding on the top of his head, so it appears that one of those shots busted him open the hard way. Funk soon gets his receipt with an unprotected chair shot to the head as well. Ah, late 90s wrestling. Around this time, Austin's audio starts cutting out, presumably at the orders of Vince McMahon, so he tosses his headset away and grabs Lawler's from him instead. The same thing happens on the new headset as well, so an irate Austin takes his frustrations out on Lawler by punching him in the face. The King then runs backstage to avoid pissing Austin off any further, which is probably the right call. The actual match takes a backseat to Austin's actions for a bit, but when things calm down, Foley lifts up the protective padding at ringside and goes for a pile driver. Instead, however, Funk backdrops Foley directly onto the exposed floor because Foley loves doing those spots where he lands directly on concrete for some reason. A little while later, they start brawling through the crowd and make their way to a concession stand. We then get a kooky spot where Foley needlessly beats up a hot dog guy and suplexes him onto the floor. Perhaps Mick was a diehard vegetarian at the time? I don't know. Terry Funk then climbs up to the side of the nearby balcony and hits one of his patented shitty-looking moonsaults onto Foley, the hot dog guy, and one other random vendor, a.k.a. some local wrestler. Funk's moonsaults definitely aren't great, but it was still a pretty cool spot. Funk starts doing some of his trademark twitchy selling, and he can then be heard yelling, My neck! and telling Patterson to stop the match, but Pat doesn't do it. Foley then puts Funk on top of a table and pile drives him right through it, causing the table to break. They make their way under the bleachers, and JR tells us we have to go to commercial. When we come back, we see that they are now brawling backstage, with Funk still yelling, My neck! They make their way through a side door, and they're now back in the arena near the stage. Foley hits a double-arm DDT onto the steel ramp and goes for the cover, but somehow it only gets a two-count. JR is selling us on the fact that Vince McMahon has gotten into Foley's head and he is now trying to end the career of his best friend. Foley rolls Funk back into the ring and starts putting the boots to him, but it only lasts a few seconds before he hits him with the cactus clothesline and they both tumble right back to the floor. Foley puts Funk on the announce table, which concerns Austin because he's worried about Funk potentially knocking over his beer. I must say, Stone Cold was actually a lot of fun while he was on commentary. Maybe somebody should give that guy a podcast or something. Foley then grabs a chair, climbs onto the ring apron, and dives off of it right onto Funk. He follows that up by doing his standard Cactus Jack bang-bang taunt to Austin, which causes Stone Cold to walk toward him. Pat Patterson gets between them, however, so Foley instead rolls Funk back into the ring and pins him, but again, he only gets a two. Austin then gets in another great line, where he says he has to apologize for his language. It's usually a lot worse than this. Good stuff. Foley hits another double-arm DDT, but he still only manages to get a two-count. Mick then hits Funk with one of his patented wedgie pile drivers, but he realizes it's going to take more than that to get the job done. So he puts a chair on the canvas and hits a second wedgie pile driver onto the chair, and that is finally enough to get the three count. This match actually got 14 minutes on camera, plus a commercial break in between, so it likely went a total of about 16 and a half minutes. Credit where it's due, these two guys beat the shit out of each other for our amusement, and it was indeed quite entertaining. JR says that he thinks Vince McMahon will likely be pretty impressed by the brutality Mick showed, and then, right on cue, Foley starts slamming Funk's head into the chair for good measure. Austin appears to take exception to this, so he enters the ring and splashes a beer into Foley's face. 
Patterson again tries to get between them, but that turns out to be a bad idea, as Foley was seemingly blinded by the beer, and he mistakenly puts the mandible claw on Patterson. Foley quickly realizes the error of his ways, so he and Austin stare each other down. Patterson then recovers and grabs a chair behind Austin's back, presumably to clock him in the back with it, but Stone Cold turns around and hits Patterson with a stunner before he can do it. Foley takes that opportunity to head back up the ramp as JR speculates as to whether or not Vince will choose Mick to be the number one contender for Austin's WWF title. And it turns out we quickly get our answer as the awesome Dude Love theme music plays and Vince McMahon emerges from backstage with the same two dudettes in thong bikinis from last week. Vince hands Foley his tie-dyed gear and tells him, I knew you could do it! The two of them then proceed to dance with the dudettes, which is fucking hilarious and you should go watch that clip right now. Even better, we actually see Austin laughing at their dancing, which was clearly not intentional, but in his defense, I don't think I would have been able to keep it together either. I posted a link to this on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, so definitely check out that clip, because it legitimately caused me to laugh out loud several times. But to quickly recap the events of tonight, Mick Foley said he would never become Dude Love again, Vince McMahon told him he needed to brutalize his best friend in order to prove he was worthy of being a champion, Foley did just that, and we close the show with Mick presumably going back to being Dude Love, because that's who Vince wants him to be. Yes, it seems that Mick Foley has sold out in order to become the number one contender, but when your reward is getting to dance like an idiot and hang out with the dudettes, I suppose I can't blame him. And on that note, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw absolutely destroyed Nitro in the ratings, but that was mainly due to the fact that Nitro did not air until midnight because the TNT network pushed it back and aired two NBA playoff games in its time slot instead. This week, WCW was once again impacted by the NBA, as this episode of Nitro was only two hours long instead of the usual three because TNT would be airing another playoff game at 9 o'clock p.m. And in case you were wondering, the Seattle Supersonics defeated the Los Angeles Lakers, and it was still so early in Kobe Bryant's career that he actually came off the bench in this game. But needless to say, the point is that the WWF once again destroyed Nitro in the ratings, even though Raw was pre-taped six days in advance. This week, the final tally was a 5.5 rating for Raw and a 3.5 rating for Nitro. That means that the WWF has now been victorious in the ratings in three of the past four weeks since they ended WCW's 84-week winning streak. But, for comparison's sake, here's what you could have been watching on Nitro instead. Scott Norton defeated Eddie Guerrero. Kidman and Scott Putzky fought to a no contest. And, as a quick side note, this was Putzky's first WCW match, but he is best remembered for his lone WWF pay-per-view match eight months prior at In Your House Ground Zero, where Brian Christopher executed a plancha over the top rope onto him, and Putzky's leg buckled so badly that his kneecap ended up dislodging and going up his thigh. Check out that clip on the WWE Network if you're a fan of gruesome botches, or better yet, uh, don't do that. The Public Enemy defeated Hugh Morris and the Barbarian in a street fight. Van Hammer defeated Saturn in a Loser Leaves the Flock match. 
Juventud Guerrera defeated Sick Boy by disqualification. Brian Adams defeated Conan, also by DQ. Fit Finley defeated Booker T to win the WCW World Television Championship. For another quick side note, the television title had an interesting week. Chris Benoit defeated Booker T to win the title at a house show in Augusta, Georgia on April 30th. Then Booker won the title back the next night at a different house show in Greenville, South Carolina. Then Benoit won the title back at the next house show in Charleston, South Carolina. Then Booker won the title back at the next house show in Savannah, Georgia, which led us to tonight's Nitro, where Finley won the title from Booker. For those scoring at home, that would be six separate television title reigns in a five-day span. Now that may seem like a lot, but just wait until you see how WCW books their world title in the year 2000. Stay tuned for that. And in your main event, Lex Luger defeated Kevin Nash by disqualification, your third DQ finish out of eight matches on the card. I can't say for sure, but it seems like WCW really mailed this one in because they knew that the NBA would be messing with their schedule. No Hogan, Goldberg only showed up to do a run-in after the Sick Boy Hooventude match, and a bunch of other forgettable matches. Sounds like a pretty skippable show. In fact, I probably would have preferred to watch that Supersonics Lakers game instead. The Raw Synopsis As for the WWF's end of things, this was a very Mick Foley-centric episode of the show, as he was probably on screen for almost half an hour on a show which had just over 90 minutes of actual TV time. And fortunately, I can't say that was a bad thing, because his promo with Vince at the top of the show was great, and we got a very nice hardcore brawl between him and Terry Funk in the main event, not to mention the fact that I have replayed the clip of him dancing with Vince and the Dudettes roughly 8,000 times in the past few hours. The rest of the show was just good enough to be watchable, particularly the accidental segment with Paul Bearer telling his story to Jerry Lawler, Edge's debut vignette, and China wrestling for the first time on WWF television. All in all, a solid thumbs up for this episode. Next time out, Martin Dixon from the New Blood Rising podcast rejoins us for the first time since episode 14. He did an amazing job last time out, and I look forward to talking over the next episode of Raw with him. Some very interesting stuff happens, particularly with the Gold Dust character, as I mentioned earlier, so you definitely don't want to miss that. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I leave you now with a clip of... Ah, fuck it. You know what? Let's end with Dude Love's theme song, because I enjoyed that final segment of Raw so much, and I will catch you next time. (laughs) 